Ventures founded by women have a much higher success rate than ventures founded by men. And in some situations, male venture capitalists won't even touch a wearable for a woman. At the risk of mansplaining this episode, I'll let some women take over. Hi, this is Danielle Sturm, and you're listening to MedTech Mondays. Today, I have our guest, Jeanette Numbers, the principal and co-founder at Loft. Loft helps companies transform their science and technology into meaningful product experiences. They are designers and engineers with a diversity of perspective. With every project, they strive to design products that positively impact people's lives. Loft is headquartered in Providence and our offices in San Francisco, California. Thank you, Jeanette, for joining us. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you founded Loft and about yourself? Certainly. Well, thank you for having me. of course. I'm glad to be here. Um, Loft was created to fill a gap in what I had experienced in working in big agencies. I was at a big group in San Francisco. I saw client after client get uh, upsold on a process that they didn't need. You know, we'd be working with these amazing technologies and passionate scientists, but in the end, we'd end up delivering something that the consumers didn't want because the culture of the large corporation decision-making machine forced us down a wrong path. We saw a gap there, um, and that's what motivated me to to think about something different. Um, I moved here uh, and met my co-founder, Gregor, who was also frustrated by the same thing, but in Boston, and the two of us set out to create something more agile. Mm-hmm. Our work today is grounded by that agile mission. We work with Fortune 500 companies like Bose, Samsung, Square, and Seagate, And also select startups like 908 Devices, their company in Boston, they've developed a miniaturized mass spectrometer, um, which I can talk about the details of what that is later. But it's a miniaturized device that delivers um, sensing that you can carry in the field for folks like first defenders coming into a battlefield with all kinds of chemicals that don't know what is out there. We also work with another startup uh, in Cambridge called Ember Labs, their up and coming company. They're uh, producing a wearable intervention for the treatment of menopause-induced hot flashes, chemo-induced nausea, and other sort of taboo topics that uh, lots of people don't like to talk about. So today we're going to be really focusing and talking about um, healthcare and wearables. So tell me a little bit about what wearables are. Right. Wearables is a big buzzword right now. Everyone's talking about them, but really uh, wearables are based on the idea that it's miniaturized technology that you can wear on your body and take with you everywhere you go. Um, So it's pretty cool. I mean, what are some trends right now in the wearable space that you see people designing for? Yeah. So, so certainly in the healthcare space, we're monitoring things like heart rate, ECG, uh, but that's moving beyond that into, uh, glucose monitoring, um, hydration, even markers that might predict a a migraine coming on, things like that. And then beyond sort of internal sensing, we're also looking at things that are monitoring external, things in the air, things in your environment that you might not want to be around you. So Mm -hmm. uh, one example might be fentanyl in the air that can be a deadly hazard. Another might be a food allergen that is a deadly hazard in a different way. But we're seeing miniaturization happen on uh, a spectrum where it can really monitor anything from inside the body to outside the body as well. Um, from my experience, too, with, with a lot of the startups I see coming through Nemec um, and a lot of people designing wearables is I think we're at the, the point where not only you're designing things that people can wear, but what now can the, that technology tell you about yourself or about your health or about what might be coming down the line um, in your health in the future? 
do you see like that yeah. change? So, you know, I've spent a lot of years in the healthcare industry and we've seen, um, you know, p people trying to develop interventions like with pharmaceuticals or surgeries or things that are pretty invasive. Um, what's exciting about the wearables uh, of the future that we see is that they can provide interventions in a different way, a bit more proactive um, to sort of intervene before you have to take a drug or before you have to have a surgery. So that's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So tell me a bit about from the, the perspective of our audience of startups and creators and designers designing these technologies, what should someone take into consideration when designing a wearable? You know, we're evolving this all the time, but the first thing is really to understand that you're creating something that someone's going to put on the most valuable thing that they own, which is their body. So really, you know, you're talking to, uh, in terms of real estate, it's location, location, location. Mm -hmm. And here, the body, you know, it's your most intimate space. Uh, you're really giving the company permission to uh, allocate that most private area of your body. And even to go further, lots of wearables right now are focused on the wrist because it's sort of uh, popular. You have the iWatch, you have Fitbit and players like that. Um, we call that beachfront property. That is the most valuable real estate that there is on the body. Um, so I was going to ask, too, so there's there's a difference between designing for healthcare and designing on the medical side. Do you have any tips or tricks of designing wearables on the like regulated medical? Mm. Well, I will say that we're seeing a shift away from sort of prescribed medical interventions. So the, the companies that we've been working with are really focused on sort of that uh, voluntary spend, the uh, wellness category where it's it's not necessarily something you have a payer who's paying for. You're really choosing it because you want to. And that's a great opportunity from a design perspective because then they really want it. It's not something the doctor is telling you you have to use. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going to get higher compliance because they do really want it. And they're spending their own dollars. You know, we could go on and on about the intricacies of health insurance and payers and like all the problems there. But the the real opportunities we see are are that discretionary income that people are voluntarily spending on. One of the issues that a lot of people see with any type of thing that's monitoring is privacy issues. And I'd like to address that and where that information goes, how it's transferred. Are most of these devices Bluetooth or are they uh, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi 6? Are they encrypted? Obviously. Um, HTTPS would be very important in any transmission of the data because that's encrypted. So I can't get in the middle of it and steal your data. And also, what do you think is the opportunity down the road for this whole ecosystem to enhance, uh, the, although now voluntary, we see digital health becoming a bigger part of our electronic uh, medical records? Where will this come into play? I know that's a big open question, but where might that come into play with these devices downstream? So I think technically privacy and protection of data is a, a very big topic, but I will go back to kind of Danielle's first question, is, which is what do I think about when I'm designing a wearable? And it really is the user. So I want to make sure I understand what their needs are and, and give them the trust in the product that they're um, going to wear so that they're not as worried about privacy. Uh, in other words, Provide a value that isn't about uh, being a control box on your wrist or, sorry, like a, an app that's a control box for this thing you wear on your wrist. It's really providing a value that you can see that is uh, maybe changing a behavior. So it's not about as much about behind the curtain, I'm sending some data to some people who are going to figure it out for me. It's really putting that 
real information out in front of me, transparent, so that I know what's happening at all times. So it's privacy is tricky, but I think we're really about establishing trust between the consumer who's wearing it and using that uh, device. But do you design the device with privacy designed in? If it has Bluetooth, so it doesn't always have to have Bluetooth or it doesn't always have to be connected to an ecosystem. I think, you know, that's also a very big topic right now to that uh, investors want to see big data and there's a lot of sort of value there. But device does not have to have an app to be to provide a value to someone. Is there anything else that you and Loft take into consideration when designing medical and healthcare devices? We try to understand users' needs and really get at the heart of, of what uh, they're facing. Um, but there's a word that's thrown, thrown around a lot in the design space, and it's empathy. Um, so design thinking and empathetic thinking sort of in regards to patients or users or what, what their challenges are. I like to take that one step further and use a word respect. So uh, empathy uh, has a bit of a connotation of pity and that I'm thinking about, oh, you have a condition or, you know, you're facing something difficult and that's I'm, I'm coming from a standpoint of like I'm pitying you for that. But I like to encourage my team to think about it, think about this person with respect and that they that we're bettering their uh, situation, not just getting them back to normal, but really getting them better than okay. And respecting sort of where they're coming from. So an example might be designing something for, um, gasp, um, a middle-aged person and like what are all the assumptions that you might have if you're an engineer who's fresh out of college, for instance. Like <laughs> you might think, um, okay, this middle-aged person probably is old and they can't see and their fingers don't work and whatever. So I want to make these like large font and big text and big buttons so that it works well for them. Well, mm -hmm. I mean, that's really coming from a space of, A, not understanding, but also not respecting this, that this person might actually want something that they can be proud of and show off. That's the level of, you know, taking it one step past empathy to really respecting that, that consumer who you're, you're working for mm -hmm. in service of. Um, I, I don't have a lot of background in the, in the design field, but I do in my work in Rhode Island is I have seen that. A lot of um, design firms and people in the medical space and students and even people from the nursing schools say Rhode Island has a really strong approach to human-centered design. Is that something that you see in the, the, the industry and designing that they focus on? Or is that something that Loft focuses on your, yourself? Yeah. Um, well, I would say – being here um, in a space that is not as cutthroat as, say, a San Francisco or a Boston um, allows us space and time to really dig into the details and make sure we're doing the right thing without the pressure of investors or, you know, this higher higher stakes game that happens in the bigger um, ecosystems. With that, it, it drives sort of us to always be given the time and space to think about user-centered approaches and making sure we're doing the right thing. That's awesome. And that's really great, I guess, for the healthcare and medical fields as well, um, because they're so such a high risk industry you're designing. For. Right, right. And, you know, when it comes to something that's high risk, compliance is one of the biggest things that comes into play. And so if a patient isn't, you know, delighted by the wearable that they are, um, that's going to provide this, this sort of intervention for them, they're not going to wear it or they're not going to wear it in the right way. And so that's going to just basically be useless. You mentioned one thing before, the user can be proud of. 
in your history of the of the firm, mm-hmm. I, have, I have two questions. What is the device that you're most proud of designing? And the other thing is, what was the biggest challenge and the most interesting device that created the biggest challenge to getting it done? Right. Um, well, the the best answer to what is what am I most proud of will be the next project. So, um, you know, always looking for the next thing, the next thing to most be excited about. Um, I love a new challenge, uh, and that's another reason to be in this this sort of ecosystem here in Rhode Island, where we do have the opportunity to to take on projects that we really want to work on and and also be proud of that work. But I'll use an example of uh, a group. I brought up in the beginning called Ember Labs. Um, they're a startup in Cambridge. Um, they're doing some pretty interesting things around thermal wellness. And they had a, a device they launched about two years ago that we worked on. What is thermal wellness? Thermal wellness, right. So the idea of uh, that hot and cold at key points on your body can provide a comfort value or even an intervention uh, to change your behavior. One example would be menopause and you have hot flashes. And so a direct cooling sensation on your wrist can um, bring you out of that state and make you more comfortable. Another example would be chemo-induced nausea so or, or motion sickness. So the feeling of kind of uneasiness, providing cooling at a pressure point can sort of ease that symptom and um, get you out of that state. Okay. So um, thermal wellness, right? <laughs> and and these were uh, the company was formed by four PhDs out of MIT. So they use a lot of scientific information. Um, so there's another topic I'd love to come back and talk to you about, which is the vocabulary of technology and how that really inhibits founders from really doing what they want to do because of the the acronyms, the buzzwords, and all this stuff that is really. A blocker, I would say. Um, and, and also ties into the hype cycle around any new device coming out where thermal wellness, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about thermal wellness. I'm thinking Bedjet, which is a startup down in Newport, which yep. throws hot air and cold yep. air on both sides of the bed. You know, that's to me is thermal wellness. You've enlightened me. I mean, there are there are many white papers on the advantages of being at a comfortable state to do your best work. And, you know, basically so that your thermal level isn't a distraction to really what you want to be doing, mm-hmm. whether it's sleep or um, getting your work done or being comfortable in an office space that might be too cold, mm-hmm. things like that. Anyway, where were they going? The, yeah. other cha- <laughs> the other one that we got off because of our description of thermal wellness yes. was um, what, what was the biggest challenge you faced? Mm. And how did you overcome right. it? Right. Uh, the biggest challenge in wearables is size. Um, and so when a new technology comes out and uh, it's being miniaturized to be quote unquote wearable, it's often still not small enough to be really adopted by a user. Um, so the biggest challenges are really working with the team to understand trade-offs between things like battery life and performance and what a user really wants at the end of the day. So um, it's a Client may come to us with a specification document, and what I mean by that is sort of a list of requirements. We want the battery to last three days. We want the performance to be, you know, at a level of X, Y, Z. That's coming from the science side. Ideally, um, we want to talk to the users about what they really want and what they're willing to trade off and so that we can um, overcome the challenge of making the device small enough so that it's more comfortable and easier to wear. 
Interesting. Um, and one one last question, then I'll get, turn it back to Danielle with your list of questions. But obviously, we are faced now with 40 million baby boomers retiring in the next 10 years. So we have an aging society. I'm very good friends with a Japanese biopharma um, investor, venture capitalist over there. And the Japanese society is aging rap- more rapidly and they're not even replacing uh, their, their population. How do you see wearables and, and, and going back to the what you said before about that young engineer straight out of college that doesn't understand it. How do you see design thinking coming into play when we talk about different generations? And I, you know, there may be a, where it may be a 10 year gap before now, as we age, it may be a five year gap where someone degrades rapidly from 75 to 80, but they still want to have the same device. Is there an evolution that, you know, people get used to a device and then they evolve and then the next generation to accommodate their sort of, to decrease cognitive level or anything? I don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. That's what yeah. innovation is about. That's why we're here. <laughs> so, you know, I will say um, Loft is a, a an engineering and design uh, agency. We don't often come up with the ideas. We're yep. often uh, challenged by scientists who are working on those big problems mm-hmm. who then come to us to uh, get out of the lab and put it, you know, a sellable product onto a a human being and see their work really come to life. We often aren't sitting around coming up with the next big idea. We're more putting it into a shape and a form factor that can be used by people. Mm -hmm. Um, So to think about, you know, what's coming for this generation, this this sizable generation that's always been there but is moving into some new challenges, um, we don't often think about that in terms of what would the answer be? Okay. Um, so let's talk about something you're very passionate about is also women in tech in designing for women. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, we can break that into two, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, so we can start with women in tech since we just talked about that, sort of the, the, the blockers. First of all, I am one of a handful, and I will say, like, I can count on one hand, um, the number of female founders in the nation uh, in my industry. So that's not great. Um, Congratulations. (laughs) I don't know if that's deserving congratulations. It's, you know, um, a thing. But I am hopeful that, you know, I do what I do every day to be an inspiration to the next generation and hopefully change that for the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that I often see uh, as to why there aren't many women in tech is this tendency to turn to uh, stats and and acronyms and buzzwords as a way to, you know, put a playing field out there that isn't level, that essentially is, mm-hmm. um, I had a word for it, but I don't remember what it was. Um, bro culture? Bro culture, <laughs> sure. But that's, that's like locker room talk. What I mean more is um, when we get into, you know, we're looking at a widget on the table and uh, the conversation starts to go to um, buzzwords, I don't, I don't know, you know, acronyms like vocabulary that is just not everyday speak for someone who isn't necessarily either either, either a scientist or used to like RPM, I guess would be a good way to put it. Or um, a, the numbers game of sort of matching um, technology like that isn't the way the world is going. We want to understand What's the job you're trying to do with this device, not how fast can it go and how much horsepower does it have? Mm-hmm. So that that kind of speak to speak back to what is really um, the positive outcome for the patient versus like how much horsepower does the device have is a way I think will help level the playing field. Mm-hmm. 
Um, um, I saw recently, and I actually think about this a lot, is when girls are young and in high school and younger, they don't they don't know all of the opportunities and all the industries they can even work in. And when I was in high school, I had I did not know anything about design and art. I thought it was just art school. Um, but now growing up, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you could have gone to art school and been an industrial designer and create products and make things. Um, and actually on LinkedIn a few days ago, there was an article that just came out of high school students even today are saying that they want to be doctors, lawyers, the usual the usual jobs, teachers that they're exposed to. What yeah, I have, have a, I have a great example, yeah. actually. Um, so middle school, I would say, starts to be like a track for, you know, which direction you might go. And you're OK, you're a uh, math and science kid like that's a science. Uh, sorry, like, you know, doctor or um, coding or, mm-hmm. you know, these tracks. Um, but w- one thing I've discovered is um, in my field, problem solving is the biggest sort of advantage. Um, mm-hmm. And problem solving doesn't have to be equations or that kind of thing. Um, pragmatic and um, applied problem solving is actually often more important than mm-hmm. getting you know, into um, technical problem solving. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have an engineer at Loft um, whose uh, background um, was not typical sort of engineering. She wasn't sort of taking apart things and you know taking apart the toaster and figuring out how it worked she was really good at doing puzzles and crosswords and things that are it's a different skill set but it's the same sort of process of understanding a problem mm-hmm. so those are the skills that i'd like to see uh, celebrated more in a, you know a middle school level mm-hmm. where these the stamps are starting to be put on kids so if you're good at you know breaking down a problem in a different way that isn't you know with screwdrivers and a drill that's just as applicable as, you know, someone who is more into like the, mm-hmm. you know, taking apart stuff. So let's talk about designing for women. Designing for women um, doesn't necessarily mean, well, I mean, we've all heard the pink tax and things like, you know, putting just a, a, a different color on something to make it feminine. In wearables, though, uh, is where we see the biggest difference. So uh, an example would be um, a heart monitor, a chest worn heart monitor. I don't think I've seen one heart monitor that takes into account uh, the anatomy of a female, which is breasts. <laughs> so, you know, where you want to place the heart monitor, it, you know, there are seven leads or three or four, they vary, but um, they're typically right on your rib cage, sort of in your sternum. Well, there's a huge body tissue there uh, for women that's totally in the way. So the straps that are designed today don't take that into account. They don't take t- into account a bra that every most women wear. So that's actually an opportunity. We see that as an mm-hmm. opportunity. We have a client right now who's ta- tackling that as really a point of difference. Instead of uh, you know a full strap that someone has to put on and kind of manage, um, why not just make it work with a bra that's already in place that you can really tuck the, the monitoring um, sensors into instead of having to introduce a whole nother uh, strap. So it it's sometimes, you know... It, we're at a point where we can uh, identify the differences and take advantage of them and leave behind sort of the, the things that, were, that we thought were in the way before. Let, you, you work with a lot of technology and startups. Let's talk about the funding aspect mm-hmm. of funding wearables for women. Sure. It's tough. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, I think investor, you know, if we're talking about kind of startups that are looking for funding from typical VCs, it's, uh, the percentage of the amount of money that goes to a female-founded 
any kind of startup, not even just technology, is ridiculous in the single mm-hmm. digits. But the success rate of female-founded companies is in like the 40s. So it's kind of ridiculous that the majority of the money is going to male-founded companies who fail, essentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, you know, there are lot, there's lots of talk about why that is, but um, I think one of the reasons is some of the groups that come to us, particularly on wearables, are talking about kind of taboo subjects, mm-hmm. the things that aren't talked about every day. Menopause is one of them. That's probably the easiest one. Mm-hmm. But incontinence, uh, periods, you know, all these things that are like a little bit, they're just not in normal conversation, but that's mm-hmm. what we have to change. Like this yeah. is something that happens to f- over 50% of the population yeah. and it's time. I have, we- s- I have seen an, uh, a VC not touch a prototype mm-hmm. of a woman's wearable device while we were passing around while they were yes, giving a pitch. I, I think I heard that same story. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've heard um, VCs say uh, in a in a panel discussion, we need more tits in the room to p- appear that we're more female focused. So we want the yeah. representative woman in the room to make us f- appear like we're a fully, you know, like embracing all types. So yeah. And yeah. that's just the opposite of what they're trying no. to do. I, so I think that just authentic. makes – yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I think this just brings around to the bigger conversation is when investors can't or won't invest in all of these technologies because they're, they're usually men and cannot – do not understand what the impact that these startups are having for women. It's pretty much just getting us stuck in this – big wheel of it uh, I, who who knows how right. long it's going to take to start investing in those and those to actually get to market right um which is very sad yeah yeah i uh i was at a female health conference in boston a couple months ago it was super refreshing the conversation was very encouraging everyone's very supportive there were a, you know a few men in the room and one toward the end uh, asked this question which i thought was so telling of the conference which was aren't you guys worried about talking about your products right now that someone else will steal your idea? And it was no one else had brought that up in the entire conference. So it's just a different kind of mentality, wow. just a different group. It's a very sharing, empowering, you know, encouraging kind of group versus like I have to keep my technology secret and mm-hmm. I'm not going to share it with anyone because of my ego most likely. <laughs> so I just, yeah, those really refreshing groups. So we just need more of that. Yeah. Speaking of conferences, so you attended the CES 2020 and the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference recently. Is there any trends or anything you want to talk about that you saw there that you'd want to tell the audience about, about trending in design and technology? Yeah, I think we covered some of these, but the trend for wearables to be in this kind of wellness space and not in a sort of prescriptive space, meaning, you know, it's discretionary income that people are going to use to pay for it and it it actually makes it more competitive there so that's a trend that we saw just in the amount of new companies providing the same kind of technology but not through sort of like a kaiser or a big name where they're taking more ownership over being out there under a branded more controlled experience Um, i want to come back to really the respect for everyone can design for women and everyone can design for a very inclusive audience um it doesn't have to be women designing for women. Just think about who this end user is and respecting their journey and where they are. You really have the opportunity to steer products and experiences to be more inclusive, to raise the voices of everyone who might use the product rather than just the folks who are loudest in the room. I'll, I'll share a quick story here um, that's in some research that we did a few months ago. 
around some products that were, were really controlling devices in the home. We visited some homes. We had the a couple often, so it would be the, the husband and wife, and we would ask sort of group questions and just kind of have a conversation. And the question might be, you know, how do you use this device and uh, how does it work for you? Of course, the husband almost always answered first and says, oh, I'm the owner. You know, I control everything when it comes to this kind of stuff. My wife doesn't like technology. She doesn't like this. Immediately, she shuts down and doesn't answer the question for the rest of the interview. Well, in my mind, I'm like, I'm coming back to you. Don't worry. I'm going to get you. (laughs) So I wait for him to say his thing. And then I turn to her. Um, Maybe we've split off or however it takes shape. Um, I do get back to her and I say, you know, I start probing questions. Um, Oh, what's on your phone? Show me what you have. You know, it's just a different line of questioning that's she might be intimidated by the tech, but she's certainly using it um, to her advantage. And that's really what we want to pull out. It's not necessarily, again, back to kind of like, tell me about the RPMs in your car. It's more like, does this car get you where you want to go? Is it delivering the things that you want it to do? It's not about sort of the buzzwords and controlling it and, and things like that. So that's what really gets me excited is when I hear at the end of the day, she actually was making all the decisions. He was just sort of owning the fact that that they bought it for this reason. But she was the one who was going into it and saying, oh, actually, it saved more money on this bill. And like, because she's the one paying the bills. So that was a really exciting time and very enlightening. And, and that's what keeps me going. What percentage of the consumer spending is controlled by females? Well, over 50 50- percent of the population, as we know, is female. Um, but women spend more per capita than males in the same age group on healthcare. They are 70 percent more likely to use digital tools in healthcare, and they make over 90 percent of the healthcare decisions for their direct family and their extended family. So um, it's pretty powerful uh, spending power there. Well, I, I was going to bring up too. I was reading recently that like the millenni- millennial generation, based on their consumer trends, are more I think buying more wellness devices than medical devices. Mm-hmm. So, it, if you're wanting to create a, a healthcare wearable, I feel like it might be worth looking into cr- going down that wellness path because there is a market for it with with the um, millennial generation buying. Yeah, and it, I think it also ties into the the whole idea of um, a proactive wearable, which is something that is, you know, not just tracking and just kind of being in the background. This is really something I'm going to rely on to change mm-hmm. my behavior. So that that I think does play into that. I have a question. So we have a lot of students at RISD here, and a lot of students at Brown and URI. A lot of very smart people. We've talked to some in past episodes. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to students? who want to stay in Providence for the exact same reason why you're here. It's not the rat's nest, the snake pit of Boston or San Francisco. What advice would you give to them as a successful founder starting a business in wearables or IoT or anything and how to sort of nurture an ecosystem here and build a company and build a a network? I think it's, you know, we have a lot of staff that are from RISD uh, and from some of the colleges that are younger. We attract a certain kind of personality. I guess, you know, I would say that we're never going to convince someone to stay here in Providence if they have a desire to be in a big city. You're just not going to convince someone of that. But what we can do is really, and I think this goes to sort of the millennial topic of you're looking for something different out of life. You're not looking for the sort of that buzz and the kind of be part of like this ecosystem. I'm going to use a word passion that <laughs> is controversial, but <laughs> only in some circles. Right. Um, 
you can have that here. You can be you can have the time and space to really work on your personal passion and make it come to life. There aren't as many distractions. There aren't as many pressures to be in working with the right people or know the right groups. Really, the environment here is kind of a laboratory for really kind of digging in and really fulfilling the passion that you are after. I have, I have one last question. Are there any resources that you can identify specifically? And if you say no, that's fine. I'll just cut it out. <laughs> um, but are there any resources that you can identify specifically that people can turn to for either starting something or getting an idea going? Or are there any groups that meet or, and you know, that they, they can get a feeling for what's happening to make that decision to either stay here or start something or go somewhere else? Right. There are a few meetups. I will be honest, there aren't actually many resources here. And of the resources, everyone is sort of either a little bit quiet about what they're up to or they're not meeting as often. But I see that as an as an advantage to really give the time and space to decision making. You know, design and creating something is all about decisions and making decisions that aren't forced is really what we have the advantage of doing here. Honestly, there aren't many resources when that's what we're trying to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one thing about resources and what's here is really that's why we chose to be here. We're actually at the beginning of what could be a great ecosystem. Um, and so that is another reason why we're excited about working with everybody in the community and really raising that up. But being in now at the ground floor is is allowing us to create an ecosystem the way we want it that's not influenced by outside sort of bottom line or other things that maybe aren't in the best interest of kind of like what we're trying to do. I've heard it from a number of people other than you talking about, you know, people are quiet about what they're doing. They don't talk about it. I realize that's sometimes strategic, but oftentimes right now we don't want to be Boston or San Francisco, but we have to get to a level above where we are now where information is not siloed, where people can share because right now we're not attracting that funding level. We have a great innovation system, but we need some VCs. We need we need some more angel groups to fund these efforts mm-hmm. so we can then, people can create a company, create a product, create an application, whatever, get it funded, buy a home, create jobs, mm-hmm. and build this ecosystem a little bit better. Absolutely. So I think Absolutely. we can find that happy medium somewhere. Where that is, who knows on the meter. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Jeanette, for joining us. How can we stay up to date with you and connect with you? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, really exciting uh, to be a neighbor. Um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. We love meeting new people in the innovation community. We uh, on our Instagram at Lofts Designs, or we have a newsletter on our website just launched today. And you know, you can sign up. We're only going to send good stuff, so don't worry. Otherwise, you'll see me at CIC or at Venture Cafe events. Thank you guys for listening. You can follow us on Twitter and all social medias at NemicEnter or hashtag MedTechMondays. Thanks. Thank you for listening and all your positive comments about the Road Pod. We're excited to bring you these innovative people every week. MedTech Monday and Innovation Thursday. If you need to reach me, reach me at Tom at TheRoadPod.com. Thank you.